This is unstructured. Hello, everyone. This is your friendly neighborhood sound engineer slash musician slash uh, person who does things for people, Isaiah Gouli. On this call, Eric had a few technical difficulties, so it's cut in three parts. You'll notice them. Don't pay any mind to them. The content's still great. Just plow on through. Sounds awesome. Enjoy the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave comments, reviews, rate it. You know, all that jazz. Follow us on social media, Unstructured, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Talk shit to us. Um, Call Eric old. He likes that. Don't worry about it. And uh, overall, have a good podcast listening session. Thank you and good night. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Unstructured. Today's guest is pretty excited about. He's one of those people who you hope you never have to meet or need. But if you're ever in a serious amount of trouble, he's a guy you want to know. This is Rich Lamiro. I don't know if I'm saying that right. You're going to have to correct me. Either way is fine. All right. Now, he is a trial attorney out of New Jersey. I believe attorney of the year at one point. I was, yeah, I was the young lawyer of the year for the New Jersey State Bar Association in 2016. Wow, that's, that is amazing. So now, what exactly is a trial attorney or trial lawyer? So, yeah, very much like medicine nowadays, you, you specialize in an area of law like you would in medicine. And for me, I specialize as a trial attorney, um, specifically in the areas of criminal defense and plaintiff's personal injury. But I'll try anything um, in front of a jury. That's where I like to be in the courtroom. Whereas there's other attorneys who may be a transactional attorney or an estate's attorney or a real estate attorney where you probably will never see a courtroom. I live my life in the courtroom. Okay, so are you kind of a rare breed? Because it seems like any more any any lawyer I meet, they're like, oh no no no, I don't ever go to court. <laughs> yeah, it's beca- it's becoming more and more that way, especially since uh, a lot of resolutions for cases are now done outside the courtroom, such as arbitration and things of that nature, mediation. Um, you're you're finding less and less people who are in the arena doing battle. But for me, that's when I was growing up. That was the kind of lawyer I always wanted to be, and I'm I'm very happy to specialize in that. I've, I've got an advanced degree in trial advocacy from Temple University, which is a very rare thing. Um, so I'm, I'm really specialized in that area of law. Yeah, I saw that. And I, I was kind of like, is that um, an additional thing? Like my father-in-law, I know he has uh, his JD and he also is an MBA. He determined that getting the additional master's degree helped benefit his particular area of law, which is contract law. Sure. Is that kind of what you have done is picked up an extra master's degree in a way or a higher specialization? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So a lot of people will do a joint NBA um, JD program uh, where if they're going to be doing business law, that's what they would do. Now, for trial attorneys, you can go and get an advanced degree in uh, trial advocacy or they also have it in like tax or, you know, specific niches of law. It's it's the highest degree you can get in the practice of law in, in the United States. Now, for specialty areas. Oh, cool. Now, is is law one of those things like surgery or whatever that, that niching down is a, a way that a specialist gets more money or a higher degree of status or? Probably both. Um, 
but I don't think people necessarily do it for that reason. I think they do it to hone their skills and hope that that's a result of what they do. Um, that for me, that was, that was the case anyway. I wanted to, I always knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer. My father's a trial lawyer. As, uh, I think, you know, I work at a firm where my dad's a lawyer there. My brother's a lawyer there. My sister is a lawyer, not there, but she practices law. So this was a thing I was born and bred to do. Uh, and I always, I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I didn't know I wanted to be a lawyer necessarily until college was over. And I was like, all right, I better figure out what the deal is now since the frat life's done. Um, (laughs) and then I went, you know, I went to law school and, um, and that's where I kind of started to do more trial work. Uh, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Well, cool. So law, law is a family business. And what did you want to, um, do besides being a lawyer? I think like most of college students who are having too much fun, they have no clue what they want to do. Um, so I was just kind of floating along. I went to Seton Hall undergrad and, uh, and I was, I did well in school. I just didn't know what it was. I was like kind of a free thinking person at college. And when college ended, I said, I know one thing, I'm not ready to work a 40 year or 50 hour work week. I better keep going to school. Uh, and I went to law school. It seemed like the most logical thing to do next for me personally. So that's what I did. But doesn't that by itself or guarantee a 60 hour work week? Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I, I didn't say I didn't want to do that 60 hour work week. I just didn't want to do it then. Uh, so I, I was I was putting off the inevitable. And th- here's here's the real answer. Um, I want I always wanted to be like my dad. I mean, growing up, he's the guy who I admired the most. So it was an easy, you know, your dad's a shoemaker. You might become a shoemaker. Your dad's a uh, a plumber. You might become a plumber that's kind of a tradition in this world in general. But for me, he was like the happiest guy I saw. I respected him greatly. And I said, you know, if I want to be like one guy, why not be like him? And, uh, and it's paid off. I like what I do. So it's cool. He likes what he does. I mean, he, he like the, does cartwheels to work in the morning. So I was like, man, if oh, I could be cool. like that, how much fun would life be? Um, so I, I don't know if I necessarily do cartwheels to work, but I enjoy what I do. Well, that's cool. Is, isn't criminal law kind of, um, a losing proposition though in, in some ways like, not to be i think uh was with alan dershowitz by the way everybody he has a fantastic podcast and we're going to cover it more later called under oath thank you and on this episode you were talking to alan dershowitz which is an amazing get i mean i we're got talking very lucky yes the lion of law literally um you talked about what do you tell a lawyer who lose ni- loses either 90 or 95 percent of the time I don't know, were, were you referring to your own situation or your own firm? Well, certainly with criminal law, um, you're going to lose a, a very high percentage of the cases that you try. And I say mm-hmm. try because you don't necessarily lose the cases that you plea bargain on. Those are That's a resolution you've come to uh, as part of your efforts. Some people mm-hmm. may consider it losing. Some people may consider it winning. But the trials themselves are not winning uh, generally in criminal law. It's just the way it is. This, the cards are usually stacked against you. Prosecutors win most of those cases. So you're taking on uh, the uphill battle. I like being an underdog. I like going in there. I feel like I'm going to win every case I try, every mm-hmm. single one. So the fact that the world loses nine out of 10 of them doesn't make me feel like I'm going to lose nine out of 10 of them. Um, I feel like I'm going to win 10 out of 10 of them. And I think Alan Dershowitz and F. Lee Bailey and those guys, they have that special... Um, mentality. And if you can't, if you can't feel that way, mm-hmm. then you can't go into the ring. You can't, you, you, if you, you just can't do it. So yes, it's a losing proposition. If you're going to get into criminal law, you know that, but you just accept it and go in anyway. 
Well, also, and I'm sure this is trite and you've heard it a thousand times. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are guilty. Yeah, that, well, that's not my job to judge them. And I never do. Sure, sure. I, I have a job to do, which is, which is to give them a defense. You know, you, you, and, and I have yet to hear that somebody give um, the right answer, which is how can you defend people who are most of the time guilty? And, and you run back to the John Adams defending people uh, in, the, uh, in the colonial ages, the, the um, soldiers who shot at the kids in Boston. I mean, the most hated people at that time in America, sure. he defends them. Um, and everybody's entitled to have that defense. So you kind of you want to take that mentality because if the, if they can't be defended, then all of us are not safe ever. Right. Um, right. So I I like you know I buy that stuff. I really believe in it. And and everybody's entitled to a defense. And I'm going to put on the best defense I can. Uh, and our system only works if there's guys like me doing that. If if there isn't, we're all losing. We're all going to lose. So right. that's the way I go into it. Yeah, it's it, but it, boy, it's a tough pill to swallow, right? Most people probably don't want to deal with that. <laughs> well, no, I mean you you have to deal with it at certain points because I'm I'm sure that you have met people who creep you out. You have, yeah, to. yeah. Well, it's just it's yeah, it's probably part of any industry, but it's certainly sure. more prevalent in mine, definitely. Well, yeah, <laughs> by yeah. <laughs> by its very nature, right. but um, your views are. Is some of that uh, informed by like uh, three felonies a day, the book and, you know, how the feds target the innocent and, and things like that, where um, I think it's said that we're all guilty all the time. I mean, technically, we could be locked up at any point. There's so much against us and we have no idea. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And I see it all the time. So, yes. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, Um well, one thing I'll say is, is even people who are guilty um, deserve our consideration that they're not bad people. People do bad things who are good people. So can I give you an example? Yeah, sure. All right. Let me give you an example. And this is, this is one of the cases that I'm most proud of. I had a, a young kid, and he was 16 at the time, um, charged with attempted murder. And he was a brilliant, and I'm not saying smart, he's a brilliant young kid, mm -hmm. 4.0 at a very prestigious school in New Jersey. I'm not going to say his name because it's no, juvenile matter, um, but he's charged with attempted murder. The case involves um, him lighting a fire in his home with an accelerant leading to his parents' bedroom where they were asleep. Mm. Okay. So it's an attempted murder case. Um, and this 16-year-old boy spends about a year and a half in juvenile detention facing the possibility of an adult trial. And just so you know, prosecutors can waive juveniles to adult court for very serious crimes like attempted murder very easily. It's not a difficult thing for them to do. And once they're charged as an adult, the landscape changes and they can be a felon and they can spend the rest of their life in jail. But ironically, so, they can't buy a beer. That's yeah, <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> hit the nail on the head. But they can certainly spend the rest of their lives in jail. Uh, and it's completely at the discretion of the prosecutor most of the time, whether they want to make that motion and move them to adult court. So in this case, um, I'm telling you, this is a good kid who probably had a breakdown, a manic episode where he did something that was, or allegedly did something that was incredibly stupid. Um, but he was, when I tell you he was a great kid, he was a great kid. So at 16 years old, there was two ways this case could go. He would spend most of his life in prison Mm -hmm. um, or the prosecutor's office would help uh, save his life. And they did. So for a mm -hmm. year and a half, he was in the juvenile detention center. 
but we put together a package of treatment and and future um, ways that he was going to address his issues. The family was all on board. And by a year and a half into it, um, the prosecutor's office invited me down to their office to meet with the prosecutor, the head of the office, which which doesn't normally happen. But this is a heavy case. Everybody knew about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they bring me in. I'm obviously I'm sweating. You know, I'm nervous. I don't know what's going to happen. And I sit down and there's there's like six people in the room with me and they look at me right away and they say, Rich, we we looked at everything you've put together and we agree with you 100 percent. We're not going to waive this kid to adult court. We're going to put him into a program to get him the help he needs. And I'm happy to say right now he is a sophomore at a wonderful university. He's got like a three A GPA. And I, I'm not kidding you. He may change the world. He's a brilliant kid. And he's That's now cool. an adult without a felony. And this will never probably should never come back to be discussed again. Um, but it could have ruined his life. He could be in jail for the next 30 years. If it just went the other way and nine out of 10 times, I bet you it does go the other way, but this time it didn't. Well, one thing I love about your story though, is you were representing the prosecuting office as they're not your enemy. No, they were with me on board on this. They, they let me get the ammo to convince them that was the right thing to do. And then they did the right thing. It was a, it was a collaborative effort. So that's why I'm saying it's not always a he's guilty, throw away the key type of situation. And it shouldn't be. We as a society should be trying in those situations when we can to work together for the best result for everybody. Because remember, they represent the state of New Jersey. They represent the people. What's best right. for this state? And they did the right thing in that case. But I'm telling you, that is not how it normally happens. That's, that is the, uh, the very, very rare exception. And why is it that way? Is it because people are elected and they can't represent themselves as soft on crime or is there another I think reason? they'll I think they'll always be a little mentality of us versus them for both sides. The criminal defense attorneys, too. I'm not sure a lot of criminal defense attorneys would have went into the case the way I did. They may have immediately been like, we're not talking to anybody. Let's try this case. Yada, yada, yada. It wasn't the right move in that case. You have to consider each case. And I think on the prosecutor side, a lot of prosecutors come into the game saying it's us versus them. Um, and, and that may be right in some cases and it's wrong in other cases, but certainly the fact that, um, prosecutors are appointed, nobody gets appointed or elected by being soft on crime. Okay. Ever. Okay. (laughs) And you see that problem a lot of places, uh, in America, especially where judges are elected. Now judges are not elected in New Jersey. Um, but places where they are elected, they're appointed by the governor here in New Jersey, but where they're elected, um, no, no, no. They have terms. They can get tenure and then they have a mandatory retirement age eventually. So there is a little oh, turnover. Good. Yeah, there's some turnover. <laughs> it's not like the Supreme Court where they appoint a judge and then they get, you know, they do whatever they want. But um, certainly politics play a part in it. Which they it always will. I'm, I'm yeah. sure. Um, good or ill. Um, what do you what do you think about and. Some of these questions, I have a Facebook group, the Unstructured group, which I'm going to plug real quick. Everybody go to Unstructured on Facebook, look up the group, and submit questions for potential guests, things like that. It's a really cool group. I'll be, I'll be joining. Definitely. And you might be hit up with some questions, too. Absolutely. But I definitely want to put it out there because I have some really smart people, smarter than I am, and they will throw out questions that will just lay you out. I love but, it. Um. One of them, okay, here's a perfect example question. Does paying a fine incentivize the system or continue, um, to continue to look for wrongdoers or more nefariously create wrongdoing, as in quotas and et cetera? It's kind of a critique on the fine system. The fine system 
is probably one of the only ways we can logically punish people for minor offenses where we can't put them in jail. You know, I guess there's community service that that could be put on uh, impose or 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 levels of uh, supervision. But the fine system is probably a necessary evil. Uh, it's not fair necessarily because it might hurt someone who doesn't have as much money as someone else. Whereas, you know, with the shoe sure. was turned, they could just pay the fine and move on with their lives. Um, but I, I think it's probably a necessary evil. I can't think of a better one off the top of my head for punishing low level offenses. The problem is that I, I think that they're trying to bring up to is things like speed traps and, yeah. oh, and well, other, you know, um, other fines that feel like, Hey, here's a way to get some easy money for the local yeah. government or municipality. That's uh, a hot topic in New Jersey right now, actually. Um, because there was there was a, and I, I can talk about this now because it's it's been resolved. But there was a Monmouth County judge who was um, just recently was charged with criminal offenses for the handling of his cases. Um, they concluded that he was trying to generate more money for the towns he was appointed as judge in. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, the answer is yes. It cre- it, it it has to create an issue where um, the, the municipality is paid with the money that's generated a lot of times the state police is the effectiveness of the department is oftentimes gauged on how many tickets they issue and how much money they generate mm-hmm. that's in it in and of itself uh is a conflict so let me give you an example of a really bad conflict that happens in new jersey there's 566 towns in new jersey okay first of all that's way too many they should be broken up into counties but in each town almost there's a municipal court which deals with low-level offenses like speeding tickets for example right. okay so let me get ready listen to how ridiculous this is the town council or committee or whatever it is, the governing body of the town appoints the judge, appoints the prosecutor, mm-hmm. appoints the police, and appoints the public defender. Every person who's involved in the disposition of a ticket in municipal court is appointed by the town council. Shocking. So, yes. Right. So, <laughs> yes, that creates a terrible conflict. And could it be um, mitigated by creating a county that – that takes in 50 towns and like it is in New York, you have all these huge counties that Mm -hmm. deal with so many towns. You kind of, you at least mitigate that impact that the money would have on the town. Thus there's a little bit of a better and honest system, but yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's a problem that's present in most of America, I think. Well, like here in Virginia, um, (laughs) I got nailed by a speed trap and my choices are just mail in the money Mm -hmm. or travel halfway across the state to appear in court. (laughs) Right. Um, so th- there's so, a nice rigging. How about, uh, you know, yeah. we have video conferencing court. How about, you know, things like that to where we can decentralize it and give the ability yeah, see, to actually it's, address. It's a good idea. There's probably a way to implement that in the future where people might not have to appear in court because appear in court, you take the day off work. You might have to hire a lawyer. Exactly. You're doing all of these things to try and benefit yourself with a, a deal maybe or something where you could just go on and pay a higher price and move on with your life. Uh, yeah. So I, I agree with you. There's probably better ways to do that. Yeah, it's a, the system. I I feel, and this is me personally. I feel like it's kind of rigged that hundred and something dollars or whatever it is is not that much money. It costs me far more money right. to take right. off work to do anything else. So they know that. Yeah. So just by default, it's rigged. I think that even if it wasn't designed to, it is rigged. If it might have been when it was originally created, there was probably a different feel where maybe fifty people lived in a town and everybody would go to court and it was no big deal. But the way it is now, you're right. It's it's not it's it's not serving the people of the community the way it should be. And to spin off on another one, um, 
Do you think that DUI check checkpoints may pose a constitutional issue? Oh, yeah, they, they definitely do. Um, and in New Jersey, they actually have a requirement to publish where they're going to have the checkpoints in advance. So everybody's on notice because, you, you know, um, it, it, inherent in a checkpoint is the possibility of profiling in an area. And it, it kind of runs against the equal protection clause of the Constitution. We're all supposed to be treated equally. Why is this checkpoint standing outside the trailer park? Um, waiting for everybody to come out. The reason I use that example is because Jason Baldwin from the West Memphis Three, who I told you about Mm -hmm. uh, when we spoke earlier, he lived in a trailer park in West Memphis, and he told me that they would set up a trap, right? There was only one entrance in and one entrance out of the trailer park in West Memphis. Uh. And they would just sit there picking off everybody who came in and out of the poorest section of town. I mean, how wrong is that? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Doesn't that just hurt you inside? So when he told me that story, I just I said to myself, that's awful. And yeah, I do think roadblocks and uh, and checkpoints can violate the Constitution if they're not done correctly. That brings me to another question that they asked him. What are your feelings about bail? Well, that's a great question. Again, bail um, bail was punishing poor people in New Jersey beyond your belief. There was an incredible amount of people who were sitting in jail because they couldn't post like one hundred and fifty dollar bail. An enormous amount of people. And uh, and finally, New Jersey legislators did the right thing and they actually eliminated bail with a um, a new type of system where they have a release, basically a graduated point system for whether somebody should be released or not, not based on money. So Hmm. um, there's pretrial release in New Jersey. There's no more bail. They got rid of bail. There should not be bail because you have the poor who are being punished um, and someone could easily post bail. I mean, these these were like simple assaults or shoplifting tickets that people were sitting in jail for months and months and months on. And the backload of, of cases prevented them from getting a trial. They would serve more time in jail waiting to go to trial than the maximum penalties for the offense that they were charged with. That was happening regularly. It's horrible. It's horrible. And New Jersey, I'm very happy to say that they did something about it. It It's a bail reform bill and they, they really did something nice about it. And there's people who are no longer in jail that would be in jail right now. Okay. People, so yeah, bail bail's horrible. <laughs> well, and that's what I was wondering because I mean, were were there people who were taking pleas just so they could go back to work? Absolutely. Absolutely. They lose their job. That happens all that happens all the time. There's that one case for the kid on Rikers Island that was made into a documentary. It's on Netflix. I can't remember the name of it. But he was he was in jail forever for something that was like, you know, he could have bailed out for like two hundred bucks. Jeez. On Rikers Island. The worst jail out of all the jails, the worst jail. And he, he got out of jail. He killed himself. He did. Oh, good Lord. From it, from the impact, from the psychological impact that he experienced in jail, came out, could never get over it. It's an awful story. Um, mm. It's on Netflix. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but um, it cripples you to, to hear stuff like that. So New Jersey did something about it. I wish the rest of the, the nation would do the same. I think D.C. has, but I think it's relatively rare. Oh, it's, it's very rare. It's very rare. So I don't know. I, I kind of feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, there may actually be reform. And the only reason I feel like there might be is I think we all know somebody who's in prison now. It's kind of yeah. like cancer. We all know somebody who has cancer. And when it, when it starts to touch almost everybody in the nation, like we all know a veteran or you know, whatever it is, I feel right. like then it'll start to get visibility because suddenly your cousin or your nephew or somebody is caught in the system. Then you start to go, well, maybe, maybe it, there's other people and maybe they're not always guilty or maybe they're not always a problem. 
yeah, it may take a couple senators' sons to get it done, but it will. You're right. Um, what what do you think of our incarceration rate versus global? The worst. It's the worst in the world. It's the worst in the, in the free world. We incarcerate more people in this country per capita than anywhere else in the world. How bad is that? Doesn't that sound awful? We're supposed to be, you know, the United States, the the progressive leader in uh, in <laughs> dealing with these type of issues, and we incarcerate more people in this country per capita than anywhere else in the world. And the female percentage is crazy. Really? What what is that? I I was well, I shouldn't say for sure because I read an article this morning, but the the escalating amount of females being incarcerated in this country is very disproportionate to the rest of the population from what I read. And I don't want to say that for sure. Cause I, I don't know the source, hmm. but, and, but if you think about it, I mean, the, the amount of people who are jailed in this country is outrageous, outrageous. Now, because you're in the system, um, do you feel like some of the problems are, um, contracting with prisons, things like that, where they guarantee a hundred percent fill rate or a 95% fill rate, uh, do you think it's just a society judgment? What I think your- it's a, I think it's more society judgment problem. I think in the eighties, um, from what I hear anyway, I mean, this was young in my life, but from what I've read and what I hear, there was a change in this country from punishing the person to punishing the the offense, and we started adopting all these mandatory minute minimum penalties for offenses, and our jails quickly. If you take a look at it, from the eighties to the nineties to the two thousands. Mm-hmm. The increase in the amount of people that were jailed is, is incredible. It's mind blowing. So, say you have a guy that's never been in trouble before, and he comes to you uh, in the '80s. You may be able to give him probation, but in in nowadays, at least in New Jersey, if he's charged with a first or second or third or fourth degree, he's going to have a mandatory sentence he has to go to jail for. Uh, and you know, there's all these really um, uh, escalating provisions in the law, such as a no early release act, which is 85% of your time. Jails are out, are, are really, really crowded. And it's because the way that the laws are written. Now, like I said, no, no legislator has ever won an election for being soft on crime ever. So I think that that mentality has just constantly uh, compounded and our jails are packed. So I think it's a social issue more than it is a money issue. Yeah. I did want to ask you about mandatory minimums because that to Horrible. me is frustrating. Horrible. It, and it's uh, very difficult. It's very difficult to practice criminal defense with those things in your face because you have to tell your client if you want to go to trial, the best you're going to do on a second degree is five to ten years. The best you're going to do if you if you lose. So if you lose this trial, you're going to jail for five years unquestionably. And then they'll be like, "Well, what's the offer? Oh, the offer is probation." But I didn't do it. But the offer is probation. And if you go to trial and you lose, you're going to jail for five years with 85%. So you have people who are going to plead guilty because they, they just don't want to go to jail. They Does didn't do it. With your with a lot of your clients? or <sighs> That scenario happens all the time. I don't want to say that innocent people plead guilty, um, but I'm telling you that scenario happens all the time. Okay. Well, to frame it in a, a um, better way. Um, there are times where a person, whether they're innocent or not, are better off to plead out something than to face trial. Would that be a fair statement? I'm gonna, I'll tell it to you like this. In New Jersey and most places where there's mandatory minimum penalties for an offense, people are, their only opportunity to get probation may be through a plea. Because they, or, or to not go to jail may be through a plea. So then there's, there's, 
faced with this horrible situation, um, which is, do I go to trial and maintain my innocence, my constitutional right to be innocent until proven guilty by a jury? Do I exercise that right or do I waive that right and take a plea to something I didn't do so I don't have to go to jail? That scenario happens all the time. And why does minimum, minimum mandatory sentencing play in there? Well, let me give you an example. It, before minimum mand- mandatory sentencing, you could be a person and you could be judged on your life. So if you're convicted of attempted murder or murder or whatever, a judge could still say, well, you know what? Lemuro lived a, an incredible law-abiding life. Here's 50 people up and down the street, character people coming at sentencing, talking about what a wonderful human being is. I know it's awful egregious thing that happened. I know that the jury found him guilty, but I'm giving him probation. That could, that used to be able to happen. That cannot happen anymore. The judge is bound by the scope of the penalty phase by the sentence. That's the mandatory minimum. He can't go below that. So he has to give the jail time. So we don't punish the human being. We punish the crime. You see, that's, that was a Reagan thing. Uh It was like a Reagan era thing where they, that kind of, that mentality changed in this country and it's never gone back. Hmm. I, I was kind of wondering that. It's like, why do we have judges then? Couldn't we just use an algorithm? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, yes, but the judges have a range. They have a 5 to 10. They have a 10 to 20. I mean, you okay. could probably do a point system, but yeah. And, and sometimes judges have the ability to sentence a degree lower. There's all types of funky stuff. But, but point blank, the ability to be free, completely free of, of bounds is, is gone. You have bounds. And do you see that turning back at any point? No, I can't see it unless there was the same, the same type of public outcry you talked about for bail would have to be the same way for mandatory minimum sentencing. There would be, have to be an out absolute um, social revolt in this country to make it happen. And it, I mean, I guess you could do it through now. Now this country is smaller than ever before by communication through like what we're doing right now, mm-hmm. where you could, you could get a movement like that. You could get it. I mean, with this whole thing that's going on right now with the, um, with the gun, uh, you know, reform, trying to reform gun law, that's something that's happening all over the country, and, and I see it every day in my news feed. So, yeah, could the public go crazy and really get pumped up about it? Yeah. Look at the Me Too thing. I mean, I, we could. We could as a country get, get enthusiastic about any issue and change things, theoretically. That's good. How much, um, and this is another side note, how much of this do you think is coming out of drug law? Oh. Uh, well, I, I, my personal experience is that 70, probably to 80% of criminal offenses are either influenced or directly relating to, to drug offenses. So there's a trend in New Jersey, which is good. And it's happened. I've been practicing law for 10 years. At the beginning of my practice, there was very little sympathy for drug offenses. They had just come out with a thing called drug court, which is an alternative sentence, but it was not being offered very um, liberally. And then things became more and more and more. The trend now is to really try and help people as opposed to punishing them. Um, so I think it's on the right path. Will it keep going that way? It, it, nobody's getting better going to jail for drug offenses. But I also understand that at some point um, they're either, you know, somebody may die or they're going to go to jail and stay alive. Now, can I tell another story? Is that right? No, I, I, that's why you're here. Please. Right. <laughs> I did. I had a case where. Um, this kid just could not kick the heroin habit. That's in New Jersey. Heroin is rampant. It is mm. an absolute epidemic. People get hooked on the prescription pills and they go to heroin and there's no turning back. Um, and I had a kid that just could not 
could not stay clean. And I had him all the opportunities, all the programs. And, and then I appear in front of a judge and the judge says, Rich, I'm putting him in jail for the next six months because he's not going to die in jail on my watch. And I said, to the judge, I said, judge, you think he can't get it in there? Do you really think he can't get heroin in jail? He can get it in there. So I don't buy that argument. And it's true. It's in there. It's everywhere. Sure. Uh, and, and and if you think that somebody's not going to get a hot dose of a heroin in jail and then die, there may be better odds that he gets it. I've, I've had clients tell me that it was easier to get drugs in jail than it was out of jail. Um, so don't I can't buy that argument that it's better to put people, to lock people up. We got to be better as a society to fix the problem, not hide from it. And we probably hide from it when we put people in jail. Well, I can't help, and I, I guess this is my libertarian bent, I can't help but think, why is it illegal? Oh well, I mean, if, if we, we, we could have a whole we could have a whole episode on that. I, I oftentimes have you know a dinner discussion with friends that go on forever. I'm mean, I'm a libertarian myself. As long as you're not doing something that's hurting me, you, I don't want to stand in your way of doing it. You can't sure you shouldn't go in and get high and drive a car, but if you want to get high and sit on your couch, I'm not going to stand in your way. And I don't think I don't know though. Is the society it makes much sense for us to sit there and tell people what they should and shouldn't do uh, as long as they're not causing a harm to anybody else? But look, that's my opinion. Yeah, but I can't help but think that um, how how much of the prison is filled with either possession cases, an enormous amount, dealing an cases, enormous, an enormous, and you'll take both of them out of the robbery equation. cases right. where you're stealing to pay for a habit, um, violence cases where you're fighting over territory to sell product. Um, am, am I missing any, or it seems well, like it's even more. No. The list could go on for a very long time. There's things that will never go away because people are going to rob and steal to feed their habits, probably. But what you would do, and let me give you an example. In New Jersey, we're, we're really close to legalizing marijuana, and I just hope it happens sooner than later. Um, the second you legalize it, maybe not the second, but soon after, you will take away an enormous amount of low-level offenses that are ruining people's lives. I mean, young kids... 21, 22 years old are getting, you know, marijuana charges and it's going to stain their record. And instead of getting that job they wanted out of college, they have a marijuana charge. I mean, give me a break. Is that what we want to do? Is that benefiting society? And right. then the only, they're getting marijuana from the people who are in the streets. Take them, take them right out of the equation. Take the number one, you know, the, in the early 1900s, the numbers game was the big illegal thing, right? That was the illegal way that sure. the mafia made all their money. The new sure. New Jersey runs the lottery now. That's who runs the lottery. That's what, and they make a ton, and they take a ton of money doing that. So the same thing's true. Take out the corruption. Take out the um, the underground illegal dealing of drugs by gangs because that's who deals it in New Jersey anyway. I mean, the gangs control the drug market, um, and you take a, you take power away from them. You instantly take power away from them. instantly. So yeah, obviously I'm in favor of legalizing marijuana at the very least. The other ones are I know it's a harder sell, but. Is, well, is probably, you know what, even if you only get marijuana, maybe some people will gravitate toward it just because they can get it and yeah. do edibles or something instead of heroin, possibly, you know, guarantees, but maybe. Right. And I, and I don't, I don't know, but I can tell you one thing. Um, there's no difference between alcohol and marijuana. I mean, no, I can't say no difference, but there's certainly the dangers that are in, in alcohol. I would rather have somebody who was using marijuana put their car on the road before somebody was drinking. And I don't think either of them should, but the no. dangers of drunk driving is at, is very, very clear and well, scary the, to me. The advantage of marijuana is if they probably won't leave the house. Yeah. Stay at home. <laughs> and I, I don't know which one's safer, which one's worse for you, but I mean, alcohol is, is, is very dangerous too. As you oh, <laughs> cheers.
years. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's an apples and oranges thing. I just don't think anybody should tell anybody else what to do. If they can do it in the comfort of their home, they can go ahead and do it. Well, if you treat it like a health problem versus a criminal issue, I think we may go a lot farther. Portugal's done some really interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I, and absolutely the same way that people have uh, help with blood pressure and have, have help with um, mental illness, they should have help with um, drug addiction and things like that. I mean, sure, I, I don't, I'm not saying we shouldn't help people who have problems, but um, I don't think we should punish them. Well, you can fund it. You're taxing it. You're selling it as a product. You tax it. You put that tax right into therapy and rehabilitation yeah. and things like that. Sure makes sense, doesn't it? Almost too scary. But then I do kind of wonder... <laughs> Um, one of the biggest lobbies in America is the prison union. Yeah. Uh, well, there's your direct competition for these ideas we're having. <laughs> well, I figure you'd be a guy to talk to about this. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, that's what we're doing, right? We're trying to figure out maybe some ideas to throw out there. And there's, there's people who will, maybe this will ripple. People will grab some, some of our ideas and then talk about it with their community and figure out the right people to, to make that message. Another question I have from the uh, community. Have you ever noticed that you get better results for your clients after the judges come back from lunchtime? <laughs> well, it depends if I was at lunch with the judge. Ah. <laughs> Seriously, though? No, I, I don't see any difference. Okay. But there, there have been studies on it. That's why I think they brought it up. Where, um, yeah. And right that was a joke. I have to say, I'm sure. not going to influence the judge at lunchtime about how to decide my case. But <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Um, I... I don't imagine, uh, I mean, look, are people in better mood after lunch? A lot of times they are than in the morning. Um, but anytime my case is resolving, it's been too much of, a, of, an, ex, of, of an experience for a, a morning or afternoon to determine how somebody's going to rule on it. How long are your average um, trials? That's a good question. So I'll talk about how long my average case lasts rather than trials. Trials are, are, are really abnormal. They are. Um, but I handle cases that are designed to go to trial at some point. So mm -hmm. an average criminal case, um, you're going to have, a, it depends on the severity of the offense. So if you have a speeding ticket or something like that, it's only going to be a month or two before I resolve it. If you have a DWI, it could be three to six months. If you have, um, you know, like a sexual assault or, or a murder, you, you could go for a year, two years before, you know, we get to trial or something like that. And then the other area of law I practice is personal injury. Those cases take forever. There's an enormous backlog um, in getting those cases resolved in New Jersey. And it's, it's unfortunate because those people do need attention. So a car accident case could be, you know, two to three years before we get to a jury. A medical mm -hmm. malpractice case, you're talking like five to seven years before you get to a jury. Is that those the intent? I mean, does it not benefit um, the corporation to hold it off for oh, a longer period? If starve the, you? the the insurance lobby is is always wanting to stretch out the amount of time before we can get to a jury, it's to their benefit. So we want we want it to go to a jury faster. They want it to go to a jury slower. That's that's kind of just the way it is. Is arbitration helping any of that or no? Yes and no. Um, I don't like mandatory binding arbitration that's that's um required before you even get into something because you don't even know like so for example you're going to go on a vacation uh on a cruise ship and this is just an example i don't know if it's something that would actually happen or not but you you sign the paperwork to, to buy your ticket and in the paperwork it says anything that happens on the cruise ship is going to be resolved by way of binding arbitration 
it's the fine print that you don't pay attention to before you have a surgery, those type of consents that you're just right. waving and not paying attention to. And then you fall uh, from the second deck to the first deck. You have a displaced fracture in your leg that needs plates and screws. You're going to be affected the rest of your life and you're required to go before a arbitrator who's going to decide your case instead of your, a jury of your peers. And a jury of your peers may be much more sympathetic than some arbitrator. So um, I think that arbitration has its disadvantages, but it has its advantages and that it may resolve cases faster and, uh, and, and get the pipeline for people who need money to, to deal with the issues that they're dealing with faster. So there's good and bad. I, I think, you know, I always want to try a case in front of a jury. I'm a people guy. Um, so I like, I like that better. And that makes sense. Well, and you have the talent for it, but for some, maybe a passing through would help. Um, yeah. Yeah. In New Jersey, they have, they have, um, mandatory non-binding arbitration and auto accident cases, which is a good tool to try and get everybody to settle. So any, any car accident case has to go through a arbitration process where someone tries to uh, put a number on a case and get the parties to agree to it. So I, I am, I like mediations. I like arbitrations. There's probably, you know, they say the best results are when everybody walks away, not super happy, but not super mad, just kind of in the middle. Those are the best cases. Most um, fair, probably. Right. Most fair. Um, so it depends, it depends who you ask, but yes. Well, no, I mean, if nobody is happy, then ultimately it is fair. Right. Because right. that's the theory. That's the theory of it. So I, mean, I, I could buy it. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, here's another uh, left field one, but. In what ways have you seen the uh, prosecution get around the Baston rule during jury selection? Tell me what your question is without using the Baston rule. Um, certain. T- how does a jury? How does a prosecution manipulate to make up the jury in a manner that would be beneficial to them? That could perhaps. Be violating, violating racial or uh, other guidelines. Yeah. Now you may be in an area that it just doesn't matter if it's no, it does the matter. population. It, it does matter. Um, in my area, this is, these are things I see that really outrage me. Um, most of the time, I see people brought into court in handcuffs. They're African American. And most of the jurors in Monmouth County are white and most mm. of the jurors in Ocean County are white. And, and that's in and of itself, not a jury of their peers. It's right. frustrating. I hate seeing it. And because a jury pool of 50 people might be brought up, all of them white, can't even exercise that, that theory that the prosecutors discriminating against the defendant by striking a, a certain juror because there are no none of those jurors and that happens a lot in my county where i live um are they committing the crime in the county yeah there's just a disproportionate population um in my <laughs> county and, okay. and and there's there's so many different towns that draw from it and you have to say you're drawing from five or six towns that are predominantly white uh, and you have a town that has a predominantly black population and the defendants charged from that town. But mm. the selection just happens to be from the other towns, which are f- far larger. I see. Okay. And there's, you know, there, th- that happens a lot. And, and so a way of, ironically, they're not manipulating anything to get around it. They're getting around it by way, by the way the system is. Mm. 
Okay. So can that happen? Yeah, it does. I don't see any prosecutors trying to intentionally strike a black juror because there's a black defendant. And, you know, I don't I, I would want to believe that that wouldn't happen where I live or where anybody lives at this point in life. But who knows? Probably does still. OK, I, I was just curious. And I, yeah. I mentioned area because I live in Hampton, Virginia. Um, I'm about four blocks from Hampton University, which is the first historically black yes. university. Yep. Sure. And our population is probably 40%, 50% African-American. So we really don't have that problem. If anything, it's probably the reverse. See, I think that, I think that's great. And I'm envious of that. Um, I'm envious of a diverse jury pool. And there's a neighboring County next to me called Middlesex County. And I get the most diverse juries there that you can imagine. I'm not talking just black and white. Sure. You know, sure. any any mix and match you can imagine in Middlesex, I get them. And it makes me so happy when I'm picking a jury there to see that and to experience that, you know, diversity in the jury pool. And I just, you know, and I'm not blaming anybody in Monmouth or Ocean County. It's just the makeup of the county. The county right. is made up that way. And in, in those other counties, it's a more diverse county and you have that type of selection. And uh, so I'm jealous of you. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, and it's not only diversity of race, it's diversity of thought, diversity Every, of class, oh, yeah, diversity Absolutely. of level. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you mentioned and, the trailer park in West Memphis, and that's probably not very black. No, no, exactly. <laughs> and it, But you should have that. that and, and then the same scenario may occur in West Memphis where the defendants from the trailer park and the 50 jurors they drew from all over that area of Arkansas have nothing in common with the person from the trailer park. It's the same exact, it's exactly what I'm saying, but saying it differently. And, sure. um, and I don't know that there's much you can do about that because in, in New Jersey, I think they pull it from uh, voter registration, yeah, your jury registers. selection. Yeah, who registers, right, exactly. So it, 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 we're shooting ourselves in the foot sometimes. Yeah, and then there's the other side of it where your idea of the jury is that you find somebody who hasn't heard of the case, but they're probably a moron if they haven't heard of the case. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That is a, a weird situation. Now, what are your, it's funny because I was listening to you talking, um, you know, and doing all these great interviews and in the latest one, I forgot. Thanks, <laughs> you're welcome. I'm, I'm really, you've got to keep it going. Um, your latest one, you were talking about false confessions with him. Yeah. And how that's a real concern. And I can't help but, and be a little bit of a devil's advocate. I know that they go on and stuff, but I can't help it, but wonder why I, I just don't want to say that cops are naturally bad people. Yeah. Do you think it's a case of um, confirmation bias run amok? Like they yes. don't mean to do anything yes. poorly. They just, they're yeah. so certain. And then they look for all the signs and that those signs line up as, as badly as the person doesn't want to confess to something false. The cops want a confession to something true. Um, if that makes sense, they, they, they want, they desire it so bad that they, maybe they don't even know that they're pushing, um, because they want it so bad. I mean, maybe they did think that Damian Eccles and, and Jesse Miss Kelly and Jason Baldwin, that's the West Memphis three. Maybe they were so convinced that those guys did it, that they were pushing that hard. I mean, a kid eventually gave it up and you're, I mean, so, no, I don't think all the cops are bad. I think most cops are good. I know a lot of great cops who are my buddies. And, okay. um, and I think that um, sometimes their job is, is in and of itself 
influential in how they do their, um, you know, what they're expected to get out of people. Sometimes they'll use a little bit um, more than they should, not necessarily because it's bad, because that's the way they're taught to try and get it across the goal line. Um, so, for example, the read technique, which is um, you're allowed to kind of lie to a, 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 a um, accused to, to try and influence them to give you information. That's not a good thing. You know, it's a bad thing, but it's taught and that's the way it is. Uh, and I think the police officers use that with good faith, um, but it gets bad results. And that's proven. Well, it was funny in The Wire when they used the copy machine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and homicide. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Actually, The Wire, you could learn a lot from that show. Really? Is it, it's pretty accurate then? Yeah, it is. That's awesome. Um, another um, thing that came out of the interview I was thinking about it was kind of interesting is how he was referencing John Douglas, um, famous FBI profiler. Right. I don't I guess he's got a show now or something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. A, a show on Netflix based on his book and his life. Um, John Douglas is an interesting guy though. I don't know. Have you heard of Malcolm Gladwell? No. Okay. Malcolm Gladwell is a really famous author. He writes for the New Yorker. He, um, kind of took John Douglas to task and sort of shredded the whole FBI profiling field as essentially being garbage. <laughs> and I, I couldn't help but think about the fact that the same way cops can elicit a false confession or even worse, psychiatrists can, can get children to confess things that, yeah. you know, happened to them when they were young, even though they, you know, it didn't happen to them just because of the way they're asking. Right. Well, profiling is kind of that in reverse. Let me think this through for a second. Profiling is the reverse of that. Yes. Why do you say that? I agree with you. Because I'm saying that you are taking the effects and reversing the, the uh, tendency. So, Instead of saying, I have a person here and I want to point toward that person, I have a scene and I want to generate that person. And then when I find that person, I only talk about the parts that match with what I thought about the person. Yeah, that, most, that, that's, that's definitely something that occurs with profiling. You, um, you attract the people who you believe would be responsible for the situation. It, it, it's a reverse, you're right. And, and some of it's just obvious. It's a serial killer, so it's a white male between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, yada, 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 because there's a whole historical tendency. Yeah, that, that kind of is what happened in West Memphis with, the, uh, with those three kids in that they fit a profile of like people who wore black clothes and listened to Metallica, and they, they had come up with this satanic um, worship murder scenario, and they fit that category of suspect uh by the music they listened to and the clothes they wore now that had no historic uh accuracy for that type of murder in fact the, the better odds is that it was somebody in their family who did it um you know that those are the type of murders um that are that are not <laughs> by three 16 year old kids <laughs> who'd wear metallica shirts and and uh listen to heavy metal more likely it was either somebody who was experienced with that type of stuff and had done it before, uh, or it was somebody who really thought it through and had some type of motive. But, um, yeah, I think that that was kind of an example of profiling. 
But I just thought it was interesting that then they consulted John Douglas, who is a profiler. Profiler, so, yes. So I, I kind of go, is this a case of battling experts all the time? Like, well, you know, my expert's better than your expert. All right, we had a little bit of technical difficulties, a.k.a. Not Skype, but FaceTime. Damn you, Apple. <laughs> dropping out. But I want to pivot a little bit and talk about uh, a common subject. It's not necessarily an unstructured subject, but a mixed middle arts topic. And that's um, jobocalypse. And a lot of people are worried about the fact that we have things like self-driving cars and the number one field in America in terms of jobs is driving. Now, what I find amusing about this, though, is there are people who feel, oh, that doesn't bother me. Those, those drivers, you know, they just need to pick up a new skill. They need to find something else to do. What about the legal field? Do you see threats coming down the road through technology? Yes, but first I'm going to chime in on your driver situation because it's interesting you say that. The plaintiff's lawyer, I'm a plaintiff lawyer. Uh, in addition to criminal defense lawyer, plaintiffs lawyers are paranoid about self-driving cars because most of our cases are car accident cases, right? Mm. We sue people who are negligent for their driving and they hurt somebody. And when, for example, that Uber case came, uh, I think it was Uber, where the self-driving car, unfortunately, mm -hmm. it hit a guy, killed a guy. Um, most of the lawyers were like, oh, man, you see if that was you know, a human being, you could sue him. I see it the other way around. I think that it's going to open up a new market for um, holding companies and people liable. You can't create a car that's going to be able to respond the way a human person would necessarily because you're missing the human element. Okay, so you can program them all you want. And at some point, you have to believe that something is going to be different from what a human would decide as opposed to um, artificial intelligence. So in that situation, I'll give you an example. So you're riding down the street and a ball comes into the street. What's the first reaction? Little boy runs and chases and gets ball, right? Sure. It's hard hard to imagine an artificial intelligence will be able to duplicate that situation in their brain or whatever, <laughs> in their uh, <laughs> computer. Um, so I think that there there is a market for trying those cases and, and continuing to litigate cases without drivers of cars. And I think as much as there's going to be technology and there's going to be replacement methods for the law, you're still going to need Rich Lemire to stand in front of 12 jurors and explain to them life or tell them a story. And I don't think a computer is going to be able to take that away from me. But yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of scenarios where it, it will be in jeopardy. It's up to us to figure it out, you know, and maybe it'll open new doors for different types of law and different types of um, practicing um, where maybe a machine does a lot of it, but maybe a human does some other parts. But the numbers are daunting, aren't they? Yeah, they're terrifying. <laughs> they're, they're absolutely terrifying so i i mean i uh i rely on my ability to talk and i don't think a computer's gonna be able to do it so fortunately for me i think that i'll be okay but yeah there there's certainly a reason to be uh fearing the apocalypse for the future i look at all these um and this is coming from the outside i have no actual experience firsthand so i'm well trained by television but I envision a lot of associate um, lawyers or new associates going to firms where their whole job is to research case law, mm -hmm. being out of a job because of AI. Yeah, uh, that's certainly something to be concerned about. I'm, I'm also concerned about um, people becoming 
you know, Google lawyers where you have all this information available to the public and then them deciding to uh, draft their own contracts or wills and things of that nature. And, and unfortunately, the same way I would not treat myself by WebMD if I had, uh, you know, some type of infection, you know? <laughs> I would say, well, yeah, I, I'll tell you what, I go look like everybody else first, and I, you know. <laughs> But um, at the end of the day, I still go to the doctor if something's really wrong, and I hope that people will continue to do that. But it seems like that's a difficult market to compete with. Um, so I think that um, you know, there's a hundred thousand lawyers in New Jersey. That's a crazy amount of lawyers. And the, when their recession hit, people decided to go to law school or go to medical school, or go to these different advanced or gra- get a graduate degree in business or something because there was no jobs. Mm-hmm. And then that only compounded in, in our industry. So there's more lawyers than there's ever been before. Um, and yeah, and then you have these concerns where the market's probably going to get smaller and smaller in all of our fields. So yeah, it's a, it's a terrifying thought for the future of, um, of anybody coming out of high school or college, um, almost as bad as their student loans, but that's a different issue. Well, and I, and I'm not, um, just picking on you because you're in the law field. I'm in it and it should be more terrifying for you actually. Oh yes. In a lot of ways, I I recommend that nobody goes into networking. (laughs) Because everything's going to the cloud. That's where it's at right now, though. I mean, that's where it's at, right? No, it's not. That's the no. joke. Oh no, no, that's what the television tells you in the ads. Well, I, I am a, uh, I, I'm sitting here mercilessly. You know, the television's all I got. That's all I know about. <laughs> well, I'm just a dumb go. lawyer. What do I don't even know? The, the, the tech stuff. I rely on you. Well, so, I learned yeah, from the, Matlock, so the, we're even. <laughs> yeah, we're even exactly. But yeah, I mean, to me, all I all I think about is that the tech is the tech industry is booming, and that all these jobs are all over the place. The tech industry is booming, but we're all going to the cloud, and by the cloud, I mean Microsoft has a cloud, Amazon has S three, right? So before, like at your law firm, I imagine you have a network on premise. Yeah. Okay. Well, most businesses are moving away from that, and they're saying, you know what? I don't want to deal with the servers and the backups and everything else. Microsoft, right. I'll pay you a couple thousand a month or whatever it is. You're our network. Well, we have the hard network and then we're backed up by a cloud. And I'm told, because this is a mystery to me, how it really mm-hmm. works. But if we if we went down today, it would all be up in the cloud, wherever that is. So, yeah, that's that's going right. on even with me. Exactly. But eventually your um, local network will go away, too. You'll just connect. Isn't that like, yeah, the, it seems very concerning to me that that would be the case. Because then don't you feel like you might lose some autonomy with your product at some point? Is that possible? Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of scary. Until the next hack comes along, and then you can go sue them. Let's go, baby. Let's keep it going. <laughs> Let's keep it going. <laughs> now, to segue on, um, I really do want to address your podcast because I, I'd never heard of it. And out the gate, I look at it, and it's like F. Lee Bailey, first guest, second guest, well, we'll just go with Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> then we go on and you decide to pivot later on. You say, well, we'll do some uh, some tri- you know, civil law. We'll do the McDonald's case. How in God's name did you get these guests? All right. Uh, next round of technical difficulties. This is fun, though. We've managed to FaceTime on the iPhone, the Mac. We learned the battery life of the iPhone, which is not perfect, (laughs) solid, but not perfect, especially when recording. And now we're going to address your podcast. Now, a lot of people may not have heard of it. It's Under Oath. 
Under Oath. Yep. And with Rich Lomiro. If you search it, okay. it comes up. All the major podcast platforms have it. Excellent. Excellent. And it is a solid podcast. I, I think I've um, listened to all of them, save a couple. And he doesn't come in lightly either. These aren't run of the mill people. He starts out with F. Lee Bailey as his first and second episode. Then he swings right into Alan Dershowitz. And later on, when he wants to get into a civil trial, well, he talks to the lawyer who prosecuted the McDonald's case. And to get a more recent case, he speaks to the judge who handled the suicide of the student who was bullied in New Jersey. So it's all over the place. And I mean, this is remarkable. These are heavy hitters. How, how in the world are you getting guests like this? Well, thank you very much. Um, I got lucky, man. That's, that's pretty much the easiest way to put it is I got lucky. Um, this whole thing uh, around Thanksgiving of last year, I, I thought that the legal podcast um, shows that I'd listened to were good but none of them recreated the energy and the emotion of a courtroom. And I wanted to give that to the audience out there. I wanted them to experience um, kind of that feeling of, of what a trial's like. And I said, you know what? Nobody likes to tell stories better than trial lawyers. I'm going to reach out and see if I can get the biggest guys out there in, in, in the modern era. These are the biggest guys that there are. And I cold called F. Lee Bailey. I got his contact info. I cold called him. And I thought I would never get a, uh, a call back. It was kind of one of those things that you did when you had too much to drink. And, <laughs> um, and, and son of a gun, he hit me right back. And he was like, I'm in rich. Let's, I, I, I mean, I buttered him up a little bit. I was like, you're going to be my first guest. You know, I'm going to, you're, you're going to be able to tell the world about your, uh, about your great accomplishments and inspire all the legal minds out there. And he was, he was just right in right away, man. He's like, I'm in, let's do it. Give me a time. Let's go. So once you wow. have Effley Bailey, <laughs> you kind of you then all of a sudden you gain credibility that you didn't earn, which is what I had. <laughs> so uh, I had his name to throw around. I re- reached out to Dershowitz, and he was exactly like Effley Bailey. He was like, "Let's do it." Um, I know Lee. Uh, it, you know, I, I would love to be part of the show. It sounds like a great idea. Everybody bought into this courtroom. You know, I, I tape my show in front of a live audience. Yeah, um, I noticed that. I, I do it in a court. I have a mock trial courtroom in my office. I do it in the courtroom. Um, and, and the thing about the show that's different, I think is the live audience really gives an, an element of, um, of emotion that might not be there in that type of situation. We're talking about a trial. It's something that was done in front of a live audience. So we try to recreate that. And I think it was done well. Everybody's bought, bought into it. That's how I got them. And, and then once you had, like I said, once you had Bailey, once you had Dershowitz, everybody has been like, really? That's uh, that's great company. I'd love to be on your show, man. What's well, cool, and I, I mean, kudos for getting them. I mean that that is a a serious serious achievement. Now, Thanks. In, in these episodes, I mean, like every interview that I do, I mean, part of what makes this exciting is I get to meet really cool people. They're doing interesting things. Potentially, I'll get to meet some more heroes. Um, these have to be your heroes. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. I mean, I never thought I'd be able to talk to F. Lee Bailey. And certainly I never thought I'd be able to talk to Alan Dershowitz, who's on like CNN. And, you know, he's got a movie made about him, major motion picture. Um, he's he's probably the most famous lawyer, maybe on the earth. Maybe. Could be. You need to get so, Jerry Spence, too. I asked him. Oh, OK. When's yeah, he coming I asked up? him. 
<laughs> I'll try him again. He was really cool. I mean, he was really cool about um, telling me that he liked the idea, but he just couldn't commit to it right now. So I'll reach back to him and try again. Um, but I can't, I can't get bigger than Dershowitz and Bailey, but there's a lot of great people to tell amazing stories out there. And I've, I, every guest has been spectacular so far. So I'm really stoked about the whole show. It's been awesome, man. And, I, and like, like you said, I've used this as an, have an avenue to talk to people I've never talked to before. But not only that, I've developed relationships with them. Like I still email back and forth with Effley Bailey. Wow. I, I sent an email after the Eagles won the Super Bowl to, F, uh, to uh, Alan Dershowitz congratulating him because his family's from Philadelphia. And he, was, he sent back an email. I mean, I have a relationship with these guys now. It's cool. I talk to Jerry Buting and Dean Strang regularly. It's very, very cool. What's well, going cool. in a way? I mean, they can act as sort of mentors for you. Well, I think that's I think that's why these guys jumped into it. They were like, you know what? Lomuro says I can inspire the legal minds of the future, and they're inspiring me. I'm a legal mind. They're they, they're they're letting me be um, kind of a, a mouthpiece for their their thoughts and their views and their uh, excitement for the future. Because they may not try the cases I try now, but they're influencing me, and I, I I'm pumped, man. I mean, I've I've I wanted to do something that was going to energize my audience, but I didn't expect it to energize me as much as it has. And it has, it's awesome. I would argue it needs to energize you more than your audience. <laughs> no, to be no, real. I agree with you. If you're not energized, then nobody's going to be energized by you. I agree with that. I agree with that. Because yeah, I mean, you've got to scratch your own itch because you know, why do you keep doing it? It's like, okay, yeah, it's popular. There's people there, but I mean, you have got to feel after every interview, just like, Oof, yeah, let me go try something now. Oh, you're, exa- you're exactly right. I, I took a a, uh, a course, um, a graduate course at Monmouth University, and one of one of the things that the professor talked about was some people get more energy from an experience. Like a uh, introvert might get tired from an experience, or an extrovert might get more energy. After these interviews, I could run a marathon. I'm absolutely bursting with energy. I can't. I almost can't think afterward because I'm so excited. Um, so, and then I'm ready to hit the books and, and go think of great new ways to try my cases and help my clients. Cause these guys are just so inspiring. Um, and I hope that people, I hope that energy translates. I don't know if it does or not. I hope it does. I think it does. Yeah, I, I think it does too. And, and they're obviously generous in spirit. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, look, I don't, nobody, my whole entire operation on under oath is a volunteer operation. Nobody gets paid. I don't, you know, I do it all on my own. Uh, my brother, edits the uh, podcast and, and does all that. He's very techy like you. <laughs> so he does a great job, but he puts it out, you know, and I had, I had friends that I grew up with who volunteered to set me all up. And, uh, and the people, my guests, I don't pay them. They volunteer their time for me. How cool is that? It's amazing. It's amazing. So now out of all these interviews, I mean, there has got to be some uh, real takeaways. I mean, yeah. what are a couple things that were, you know, profound to you? Uh, it's a great question, actually. Um, I think one of the cool things I do at the end of ep- every episode is I ask five questions to my guests, the same five questions. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've found some really great um, advice. One of the questions I ask is, what should a trial lawyer do every day? Uh, what should a trial lawyer never do? Um, and some of the, the answers in there have been incredible. Um, so, for example, you know, kind of a peculiar one was F, um, was Dershowitz. His answer was a trial lawyer should exercise every day. I mean, how random of all the things you thought you would get from mm, him. It wasn't even I something that. related to the law. But yeah, I thought that that was great. I thought that was such an organic answer from him. And I agree. Like, you know, 
there's some things that aren't going to be as obvious as go read your books. You know what I'm saying? Like there, there's, there was some cool advice that came out of it. Um, but preparation, I mean, Effley Bailey, I, I would wager nobody knew a case better than him. The guy was notorious for up and down knowing his file. Uh, I think he said that um, he would um, put like 13 hour days in when he was working up a file. And he always knew that his competition was probably only putting eight hour days in getting ready. Um, it makes, makes you think of, uh, Floyd Mayweather. I think he said that he wakes up in the middle of the night to train for two hours because he knows his opponent is sleeping. Like, I like that stuff. That's, mm -hmm. that's, a, you know, outwork your opponent type of mentality. I think those guys, all, probably everybody who's been on the show has that mentality. To be where they are, I'm pretty sure they'd have to. They'd have to. Yeah. yeah they definitely would have to. Yeah. Now, side note, I've got to ask you about Dershowitz and Trump and the current situation. And I, I don't, don't I don't love it. It's um exploding on my Twitter feed, you know, some of the uh debates he's having. He's he's by no means is he not educated on what he's talking about. The guy is brilliant, okay? And I know it seems like sometimes my brother comes in we talk about it and he's like, "Where is he going with this stuff?" But there's there's Trump. <laughs> well, no no comment on the latter, but <laughs> Okay, well, <laughs> but for that's to it's yeah, you, I guess what you're saying is how can he? How can such a person with such intelligence align himself on some of the positions that Trump's taking? I guess is that what you're well, saying? I, I I'm actually seeing it like, um, okay, I hate this in the world. I have I feel like we all have an obligation to say, I really don't like Trump. Blah blah blah. Yeah. And really, yeah. we shouldn't have to say whether we like him or don't like him or anything else. But I don't right. like him. I voted for Johnson. I'm more of a libertarian type. But I kind of. Can't help but say maybe this Russian stuff is garbage. Um, I have trouble looking at a legend and somebody brilliant like Dershowitz who's coming forth saying they don't have anything. Right. They right. really don't have a case. And right. you know, it, it, it to me there's a cognitive dissonance there. You know, in my mind like it's a good, no, it's a good way. But, it's a good way of putting it. Um, like I said, I don't think Dershowitz would ever publicly or privately even state something that he's not educated on. I don't think he would. So you to so then by by that fact of itself and his his record of being extremely educated on what he discusses, you have to believe he's not you know BSing that 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 he has some type of credible reason for saying there's nothing there. And I don't even think that he'd personally like Trump. Yeah, well, I don't I don't know if they have a personal relationship or not. I'll tell you what, he's the type of guy who, even if he has a personal relationship with somebody, he's going to call it out if it's against what he understands to be um, right or wrong, because that's the type of dude he is. Okay, and that's why I wanted to address it with you. I was like, you know, this is a perfect guy to talk to. I mean, you've talked to Dershowitz and everything else. and There's not a it, bone of bullshit in Dershowitz. There's not a bone of bullshit in his body. He's a straight shooting guy, and he shoots it the way he believes to be right. Um, so I, that's why I give him a great um, amount of deference on his opinion. I really do. Okay, so... And, and maybe the stuff with Trump is garbage. And, and that's why it's so. Yeah, and it could be. I, I don't, I haven't paid enough mind to it because I'm just so tired of the back and forth with the Trump issues. I'm so tired of it. And that's probably a poor reflection on me. No, um, I think you're human. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and the irony of it all is, is the people who are trying to bad mouth him the most, his popularity is the highest it's been right now. So it's, it's like, you know, maybe we can just try and identify the issues a little bit instead of the person uh, maybe that would be better and uh, another thing about trump and maybe i'm wrong but I, I remember when i was in the army a while back there were a couple soldiers they were just a 
biggest pricks. I mean, <laughs> I just wanted to beat the hell out of them. And yeah. they're from Massachusetts. And then later on, I found out that even people there will say, yeah, we're assholes. Right. Yeah, you're and right. Yeah, there's a yeah, cultural yeah. thing, and I'm kind of like, is Trump a complete narcissistic monster, or is Trump New York? I think you might be right about both those things. Because he's because I'm like, he is the most blue-collar rich guy I've ever seen. Right. Well, no, he is New York. He is. He is New York. But at the same rate, he is a narcissistic guy. Yeah, you're right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, that's he did get elected, remember? Yes. And so and so that's there, the, there, yeah, I mean, I think we're saying the same thing. It, it's one of those weird things. It's like, OK, well, you can get lucky. And you can get lucky, but you can't just get lucky, get lucky, get lucky, that's get right. lucky, get lucky, yeah. get lucky, get lucky. <laughs> if yeah. you look at everything that happened, I don't think he's stupid. I don't. Well, he's most certainly not stupid. He, we may act like he's stupid, but he's not stupid. So anyway, moving on from that, I just I had to um, touch on that because that was a an issue. I'm like, wow, you know, Dershowitz and, and, he, and he's under fire, too. And I, I feel like I feel like the world's upside down because Dershowitz is no by no means a right winger type of no, guy. And no. he's he's very much a Harvard law professor. Da, da, da. Right. Total, um, I'd say classical liberal more than the uh, progressive slash liberal. If you look at his record, that's evident. The only, yeah. the only, yeah, I mean, you can't confuse him because of what's going on now. But yeah, you're right. But now he's being painted as a right wing alt right guy. Stephen yeah. Pinker is being called a right winger. Stephen Pinker. I mean, right. these are like intellectuals out of Harvard and everything else, and it it blows my mind. I feel like the Overton window is just slipped off the rails remember trump was a democrat he still is <laughs> yeah, I mean, so let's let's be serious about this <laughs> a, a lot of trump's real policies fit right in with like unions yeah i mean he's all for tariffs right U unions aren't against tariffs <laughs> very much more there's, there's that, a lot that, of things. that would be completely the opposite of conservative but go ahead yes <laughs> and and ironically um Many, many years back, Trump is recorded saying that if I was going to run for president, I'll do as a Republican. A no, oh, as a Republican, he said. Because they're too stupid to know any better. Yes, he did, <laughs> he say, actually that. Did. He did say that. That's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then again, he said he'd shoot somebody in the middle of Manhattan or whatever, and and people would still vote for him. And he may be right. I don't know. You're the lawyer, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you want to defend him? Um, I would defend probably anyone because that's my mentality. Everybody's entitled to a defense. So I would never not defend somebody because I disagree with their policies or their practice. That's good. That's, that's an honorable. How, how do you, uh, divorce yourself? Do you, I mean, do you compartmentalize to be able yeah, to, you have to, you have to, that was actually one of the things that one of my guests says is that you have to always be able to compartmentalize your, your advocacy for your client. Because you can't let yourself, your personal opinion, your personal beliefs stand in the way of representing and doing your job. And I don't. I, I do not judge my clients. I may get very, very frustrated with them when they don't listen to me, but I don't judge them uh, in their case. Okay. So do, do you just um, focus strictly on this is what we're covering here? I don't care if you beat your wife or whatever else happens. We're focusing only on this little narrow um, problem or issue. Is that... A, a way to deal with that or 
that's a way to deal with it. But a lot of times you have to look globally um, because it's going to it may impact um, the resolution of the case. So you can't ignore other things that are there. But a lot of times um, you can't allow them to to be dispositive in the way you represent someone either. That's fair. Um, a question I had for you, too. I was thinking about it when you were in one of your um, interviews and you talked about visiting clients and. How do you do it? Honestly, I feel like a little part of my soul would die every time I went behind bars to hang out. Uh, well, I am used to it now, so it's different now. But at first it was it was emotionally draining. Remember how I told you when I'm done with a podcast, I'm ready to run a bunch of miles? Well, mm -hmm. after I leave jail, I would be emotionally drained, probably call my mom or something, <laughs> okay? Because uh, mm -hmm. it is emotionally draining. But now, um, I'm, I hate to say it, I'm pretty desensitized to it. I go in, it's no big deal. Um, I will say this. One time, this, this, is a, this is an incredible story. I represented a guy who was having too much to drink in his basement, and he posted some ridiculous things on Facebook. Uh-oh. Okay? This was right. Yeah, we're all in trouble. Get your number. This was right. <laughs> this was right after um, uh, two police officers were shot and killed in New York by um, someone, and he wrote something offensive about mm. police officers getting killed, and it was awful and it was disgusting. But it was his First Amendment right to say it, and it was not targeting anybody specifically. It wasn't saying that he was going to do anything. It was just a rant, and that rant found him arrested in his front lawn in front of his mother taken to the Monmouth County Jail, and he was put in solitary confinement. And I went to go see him, it's around Christmas time. And when I went to go see him, because he was in solitary confinement, I had to see him through a cage, think like Hannibal Lecter. They had him in a cage in the middle of the jail, and I had to talk to him through a cage. And he was so Perfect. traumatic. Yeah, well, I'll tell you where that case ended up because it was all dismissed and all thrown out, and the judge agreed with me that it was, that it was absurd that he was charged for this. But he was, and he was put in solitary confinement. Uh, and th that time I went to jail and I talked to him through a cage and he couldn't grip that I was there to help him because he'd been so completely shocked about everything that had happened. He's like, no, are you, sh are you really my lawyer? Are you really my lawyer? Are you really my lawyer? Uh, and when I left there, I was just like shook in that scenario. Because there's, there's like, you know, different areas of the jail that you go to, you go to different pods. Most of the pods are just a bunch of people sitting around watching TV. And you're in there with them. I mean, the, the door locks behind you, you're, you're stuck in there. It's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a terrifying thing the first time you go and then you get used to it. But you, you probably can't ever get used to the max pod. And that's when I say max, I mean the maximum security, the ones where people are isolated, because that's, that's really where um, the worst of the worst are housed. And that's where he was for this. And they were protecting him. That's what they said. That they were uh, protecting him. I see. Um, but I mean, to think that that can happen, that does happen. That happens a lot. And I won that case. It was dismissed. The judge agreed with me, threw it out. Um, but that happens a lot. And there's people that are getting arrested for exercising their right to, to, to speak. And on Facebook, this is a really hot topic because people will, people no, will have um, very loose reservations on the way they type and put things out to the world on Twitter and Facebook that they might not say normally. That's like, uh, have you heard of Justine Sacco? Number of Sacco and Vanzetti. Ah, well, <laughs> well played, was, right? Well played. A little, little more criminal. <laughs> yes. Justine Sacco, um, you'll probably um, remember the case. Um, she made a horrible joke. She said, um, oh, 
flying to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. I think I do remember that. Yeah. And yeah. then she turned her phone off to get on the plane. That tweet, she sent it to a few friends. It was a poor joke. Yeah, bad joke. And she was, you know, she was mocking herself, though, in the whole thing. You know, I'm a privileged white person, and I'm going to Africa. So, you know, she's trying to be ironic. She's not a comedian, not skilled. But it got retweeted, and it traveled the entire world. Ugh. She's on the plane sleeping, has no idea what's going on, and everybody. So this isn't criminal. This is us. This yeah. is us, the, we the people. Right. We're watching the case, and people are saying, oh, I can't wait. She doesn't know. She doesn't know. She got fired. She lost her job. The whole, all this happened while she was on a plane. Oh, my God. And out of touch yeah. with humanity. Um, and it, it's a whole, uh, there's a whole book on it. It's called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Um, I forgot the name of the author. I uh, wasn't ready for that. But anyway, it it really, I think it kind of demonstrates, you're, you're talking about, you know, a dark side of that. Um, the online thing. And then there's an even darker side. Have you heard about the uh, guy who died from swatting? No. There's a, a, have you heard of swatting? No, I need you to educate me. Okay. It's a, a gamer um, online hacker type of situation. And mm -hmm. people get into argument on the games and somebody will find out where you really live. Like, let's say oh. you're talking trash or whatever. Well, what these people will do, they'll call the police and they'll say that they're you and you're holding your family hostage. You're going to kill oh, your kids awful. and wife. That's and awful. the only way the police will respond, they have to, is with the SWAT team. I have heard of this. I have heard of this. That's terrible. That's well, terrible. Somebody died. That's unimaginable. And, and honestly, this is one time that I'm okay. Prosecute the guy. Yeah. Because um, to make things worse, he swatted somebody else said hey can you swat this dude and he as a disinterested third party did it wow the per the um person he swatted they got the wrong address and they shot and killed the guy who ah. came to the door then this guy they found him he went online um total cold-blooded it's not very remorseful about it at all didn't care at all didn't appear to i can't say i'm in his mind but while he was in jail Somehow, some security broke down. He was on Twitter bragging. Stop it. And I'm like, well, he just stated he's exactly where he needs to be. Yeah, that's I mean, look, that's that's incredibly offensive. And I think that that illustrates um, the dangers of what's going on now. But so, but I would defend that guy. Well, that's your job. And I'm yeah. taking that you are a free speech absolutist. Um, I am a free speech absolutist as long as you are not telling someone, threatening someone individually. But that's not free speech. That's right. That's not, action. that's not protected free speech. Right. So, yeah, I'm pretty liberal with the free speech stuff. So let me give you an example of where I think the right thing was done, um, because we're talking about some bad examples. Just, just oh, I think in the last two weeks, a um, a student at one of the schools put on a like one of those um, Snapchat videos or something, uh, dropping the N word uh, mm -hmm. and saying how she doesn't care. And this is a white girl mm -hmm. dropping the N word, and um, I think uh, Penn she was wearing Penn State outfit, and Penn State responded by saying, "Look, we we absolutely are disgusted about what she said. It's awful. Um, we would never condone it. We don't condone it." 
but we are we wouldn't punish that type of speech because it's it's a protected free speech and she has the right to say what she wants to say. So I thought that that was a great response. She's look, she's going to face the repercussions of saying awful things. Right. And as in a, in the, I don't want people to be confused that my belief that you should be able to say what you want to say won't have repercussions in other ways. In private sure. industry, you lose your job. Tough I was going to say, yeah, if she was wearing yeah. her McDonald's uniform and they fired right. and her, you, you'd say, yeah, well, no, corporation. That's, that's a co- Right. That's a consequence of the private sector. But as a public, uh, I don't think we should tell people what they can and cannot say or can or cannot believe. Cool. You know what? Yeah. We're going to have to have another podcast, man. Yeah. Yeah. Because right, I man. feel like just, we can dig deep on this. Give me the ammo. I'm ready to go. <laughs> no, and I, I really want to talk to you about these different things. Uh, campus protests, things that are going on there. Oh, I free love speech, that stuff, um, Love it. Criminal law. So. I'd love to have you back if you're available. Absolutely, man. You just let me know when. Cool. And now where can people reach out to you? Uh, Well, they can go on Twitter and search Rich Lomuro, L-O-M-U-R-R-O, or they can just search Under Oath Podcast, and they should be able to find it either on Facebook or Twitter. Um, I have my stuff up on there, and then getting a hold of me from there is pretty easy. Okay, folks. And you must subscribe. It's a really cool podcast. You're going to learn a lot. And thanks so much for coming on, man. It's a lot of fun, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again.